You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today we're going to do something a little different. We usually invite an author, a politician, or someone interesting onto the show to talk about their book or talk about their job or talk about some pressing topic in our politics or legal system right now. But today we're going to do something a little different and we're going to just talk about three topics that really uh, got my attention this week. I want to talk about the possible impeachment of President Trump. I want to talk about Attorney General Bill Barr's interview with Jan Crawford on CBS that I don't think has gotten enough attention. And then we have to talk about Steven Crowder and his demonetization by YouTube and the fight that is going on over that. So thank you so much for for joining us today. And I just want to start talking about this impeachment issue. Now, you know that the Democrats took control of the House during the midterm elections. So because of that, they were put in charge of chairmanships of various committees like the Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee, and they're using their perches on these, on the leadership of these various committees to try and subpoena everyone around President Trump. And anyone who is not a partisan Democrat looking at this could see that they are unhappy about the results of the Mueller report. They had all their fantasies and hopes pinned on Bob Mueller delivering a report that would take down this presidency. And it's essentially what the Democrats are trying to do is continue this resistance of President Trump and either undermine his power and his administration's efforts to deliver on his campaign promises, or they would like to reverse the results of a proper election. And it's essentially a temper tantrum by congressional Democrats who are upset that the Mueller report vindicated President Trump and they continue to push forward on all this stuff. Now, you wonder about it because they do have control of the House. So in the House process of impeachment, you only need a simple majority to vote for articles of impeachment. And we saw this with President Clinton in the late 1990s. And it's really an exercise in futility because once the articles of impeachment, even if they were able to get every Democrat to go along with it and they would have it because the you only need a simple majority in the House to get the articles of impeachment passed, then it goes to the Senate. And the Senate would have to decide whether or not they wanted to actually have a trial. They wouldn't have to do that. And if you look back in history of the 19 times that there have been impeachment, uh, articles of impeachment passed by the House, some of those times the Senate did not have a trial. And certainly the Senate could tell the House, this is completely illegitimate. You are just uh, trying to continue to bring down this president it is unreasonable, it is unconstitutional, and they could, the Senate could decide not to participate in it. Because the key issue with that part of the impeachment process is that the Senate require, the, the Constitution requires that there is a supermajority of senators who decide to convict under the process of impeachment. And certainly the Republicans are not going to do that 
particularly based on the volumes of the Mueller report, volume one, which dealt with collusion, and volume two, which dealt with obstruction. And it's a massive waste of time and resources. I think most Americans who aren't partisan Democrats who are continuing to try to resist, they're upset about all this because they want Congress to work to get things done. The economy is doing better. Things are looking up. But we do have big challenges right now. We've interviewed um, Mark Morgan on this podcast. We interviewed him before he was taken back into the Trump administration as the head of border security. And he was talking about the border crisis. It looks like we'll have over a million uh, illegal immigrants who are crossing the border by the end of the year. And this is probably the worst crisis we've had at the border in the entire history of the country. And even, even so much so that the New York Times is telling the Congress that they need to approve supplemental money for the Trump administration to deal with the crisis at the border. And when we're looking at the problems that Congress should be dealing with, including pushing back on Mexico, and President Trump is now doing this tariff, which is going to start at 5% this month, and then it will go up to 25%, 5 5% every month until it reaches a, a high of 25% on the tariff, I think by October, he's, he's doing what he can do with the powers of the executive to try and put pressure on Mexico. And we're seeing news reports that Mexico is coming to the table about this. Um, now, I, I know there's been a lot of speculation that maybe uh, your burrito at Chipotle might cost five cents more. But when you think about the scourge of human trafficking, and the small children who are being essentially dragged over the border so that they can, uh, the adults who are with them, maybe family members, maybe unrelated adults, we don't know. It's hard to get this information quickly. They're able to stay here due to that Flores settlement that we discussed with another guest on this podcast about a month ago. So there are serious problems that this country is facing and instead of working on that and coming to a compromise with President Trump, this Congress is having a temper tantrum. They're trying to put the executive branch on the defensive, and they're not doing what they need to do to deliver for the American people to solve. To uh, Maybe you can't solve all these problems, but you can certainly uh, ha come up with legislation that will move the country in the right direction. But they just, they can't, they cannot concede defeat from the 2016 election. And you're going to continue to see talk about this. Uh, we also had the guest Hans von Spakowski, who's a lawyer with the Heritage Foundation, on this podcast a few months ago. I'd like to let you know that he's got a really great piece coming out at foxnews.com probably this weekend talking about the impeachment process. People have understandably forgotten the details of it, but I think it's a good primer on uh, what could possibly occur and what the maneuvering will be by Senate uh, Democrats and House Democrats and what the responses should be from House Republicans. And we have already seen one defection from uh, the Republican caucus in the House, Justin Amash, and it's interesting to see what kind of pushback he's going to get from other House Republicans. 
but that that remains to be seen. I think you also have to look at Democrats who are in Trump districts. Take, for example, Senator Doug Jones. He won that very controversial and national news election against Roy Moore in Alabama, and he's up for re-election, but he's up for re-election in a, in a state that went very strongly for President Trump. And is his caucus going to uh, give him rhetorical support? Because he should be asked every day, do you support the impeachment of President Trump? And he should answer to his constituents whether or not he would be in favor of that. And I think that would influence a lot of uh, Alabama voter voters who are trying to decide whether he's a good representative of, of them in the halls of Congress. So when you look at all of these issues around impeachment, this is not going away. The Democrats are not going to give up on this. And I think as we continue to go into the summer, I think this is the bottom line that everyone should think about. It, it's essentially the Democrats conceding that they don't think they're going to win the 2020 presidential election against Donald Trump. Now, they have a field of, is it 23 candidates now? It's hard to keep track because so many pop in and uh, it, it just seems like, I don't know if you've seen that picture of all of the Democratic presidential candidates, but even people who follow politics pretty closely try and identify uh, the pictures and it's hard to even name them all. It's like trying to remember all the capitals of every state. It's like, yeah, I, I know I have that somewhere in my memory bank, but it's going to take me a minute to retrieve it. So when you look at that and you think about the Democrats push for impeachment, what they're really saying is that they are conceding that they do not believe that they will mount an effective opposition to President Trump in the 2020 election. And that should be the key takeaway when anyone hears any of this prattling on by Jerry Nadler uh, in the House or Nancy Pelosi, who's saying she's you know going to try and do something or she's holding people back. It's all a political partisan calculation related to the 2020 presidential election. Well, what's what's being done in the Justice Department? I was very interested to see this interview of Attorney General Bill Barr with CBS News's top legal correspondent, Jan Crawford, over the weekend. And I printed out the transcript because I felt like this just did not get enough news coverage. And if you have a chance to to read through the transcript, I think you'll be very surprised by some of the things he said. And a lot of people were worried that Attorney General Bill Barr was too much a part of the swamp. He was too close to Robert Mueller. He had been in D.C. for a long time. He'd already been attorney general under one of the other presidents. And you might remember that we interviewed Mary Kate Carey a few months ago when Barr was being confirmed to his position as attorney general. And she shared that really charming story about how she worked for Barr the last time he was attorney general. And she went with him to Richmond uh, to a very uh, dangerous neighborhood that had a lot of drug and gang violence. And she 
And he showed up and the local authorities had a, a bulletproof vest and he uh, didn't, they didn't think to give it to her. They gave it to the attorney general because he's the, the biggest target. He's the one that they have to protect. But uh, the expectation was that Mary Kay Carey would just walk to the podium completely uh, uncovered by the bulletproof vest, which they didn't have one for her, but the attorney general would have the protection. And most people wouldn't even think about that. They, you know, that's just part of the job. And, you know, that of course that person is the most important person, but he didn't have that reaction. He said, you know, you just stay in the car since you don't have the protection. You don't need to come with me. And she took that as such a sign of someone who not only wants to to um, assure the safety of the people who are around him, you know, the the personal safety of the people who are around him, but that he, even though he's a big wig, I mean, you 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 are the chief law enforcement officer of the entire United States, over 300 million people, and he was paying attention to her. He was making sure that she was okay, even though she was there to serve him. And I think that just kind of gave such an interesting insight into what kind of a person he was. But a lot of people were worried that he would just continue to perpetuate kind of the swampiness of uh, the Justice Department that we've seen in the past. You know, Eric Holder being held in contempt, Laura Lynch and her tarmac meeting with President Clinton when the uh, investigation was ongoing of his wife, Hillary Clinton. So I think it's been a really amazing and pleasant surprise for those who were worried about Attorney General Barr that he is so independent, he's so smart, and he really cares about the rule of law. So digging into this interview a little bit, uh, he is really questioned hard by Jan Crawford about whether Robert Mueller could have reached a decision on volume two, which was concerned with the obstruction issue. Uh, the volume one essentially reached the conclusion that no one in the Trump campaign had intentionally or knowingly colluded with Russia in the 2016 presidential election, including President Trump, which was really not a surprise. Uh, but in volume two, uh, there were a lot of facts that were outlined about obstruction but Robert Mueller and his team, the special counsel's office who generated this report, declined to reach a conclusion on that. So Jane Crawford pushes him on that, and, and she thinks that there's some sort of a contradiction between Mueller, who gave this press conference last week and uh, essentially said, I don't want to be testified by Congress, or I don't want to testify in front of Congress. I don't want to be questioned by Congress. Instead, the report speaks for itself. This we're shutting down the special counsel's office, and the report sp speaks for itself. I, and essentially, he was saying, "I have nothing to to add beyond the report." That was the final word. And Jan Crawford, really, in this interview with Bill Barr, pushes him on it and says, essentially, Mueller didn't reach a conclusion on obstruction because of this Department of Justice policy that you do not indict a sitting president. And Bill Barr pushed back on that from Jan Crawford. And, and he says, well, that's essentially not my understanding of what uh, special counsel Mueller said while there is this 
this policy of the Department of Justice, it was partially that and was other things. But Bill Barr says, I personally felt he could have reached a decision. He could have reached a conclusion. He could have reached a decision as to whether it was criminal activity. And he goes on to say he had his reasons for not doing it, which he explained. I'm not going to argue about those reasons. But when he didn't make a decision, the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and I felt that it was necessary for us as the heads of the department to reach that decision. And I think that's really critical. And Attorney General Barr goes into greater depth talking about how it's not the proper province of the Department of Justice to investigate crimes as an adjunct to Congress. Congress has its own powers. They have their own responsibilities. They're a separate branch of government from the executive branch, which the Department of Justice is under the auspices of the executive branch, not of Congress. And you know, trying to get the Justice Department to do the work of the Congress is not only ill-advised, it is not part of the system the way that we have it set up. And Bill Barr kind of goes into the discussions that he and Rod Rosenstein had with Mueller about whether or not he was going to reach a conclusion on obstruction. And Attorney General Barr says, Rod and he were surprised that Mueller did not reach a conclusion. And clearly, he doesn't think that Mueller should have left it hanging like that. Um, but he does say that the report did provide the relevant facts so that he and, and Rod Rosenstein could make that determination. And it's even beyond uh, whether or not it established a crime or didn't establish a crime but beyond that, it's talking about the litigation uh, efforts to to basically try and decide whether or not uh, this is presidential authority in instances like when James Comey was fired. Is that an, is that a proper exercise of executive authority? And if so, then that is the obstruction issue takes a sideline to that. Um, and certainly, I think this is a really important part that Barr points out. Comey said something publicly and said something differently in private, and he refused to correct the record. And so it's understandable that, as Bill Barr says, one of the likely motivations for firing Comey was the president's frustration with Comey for doing that. Um, so, so Getting into all of this, you can kind of see that Bill Barr is a very uh, kind of down-to-earth person who just looks at what is right in front of everybody, the evidence that's right in front of everybody. And he says to Jan Crawford, I love this quote, I'm going to make the decisions based on the law and the facts. And I realize that's in, that's in tension with the political climate that we live in because people are more interested in getting their way politically. So he is telling the nation that he is not going to be a political um, punching bag. Well, I guess he is going to be a political punching bag, but he's not going to react in the way that they're trying to get him to react by putting pressure on him, like trying to 
uh, force documents out of him that the Congress doesn't have a right to have, or, you know, if he doesn't come and provide this information that's subject to executive privilege, that they may decide that they are going to, you know, hold him in contempt and really try to put the pressure on him. But I think that, uh, Attorney General Barr is signaling that he answers to a higher order. He answers to the Constitution. He answers to the law. And I'm going to back up a little bit. You might remember when the Mueller report came out, there was a lot of discussion about the redactions. And Bill Barr said, we're going to redact as little as possible, but there is stuff that by law he's not allowed to release. And that would be, for example, the grand jury testimony. And so instead of succumbing to pressure from the Congress to give a completely unredacted report. He tried to uh, give as much information as possible, but making sure that he abided by the law. And this is a really interesting detail in Barr's interview with Jan Crawford. There was a lot of criticism of the attorney general's office for not immediately releasing the entire report right after he received it from Robert Mueller. Now, we discussed that there's a law that prevents him from releasing some of the information, like the grand jury testimony. There's some information that they want to hold back because it's ongoing investigation and it might harm the investigation. And if people really care about, you know, making sure that investigations are uh, proper and follow the procedures, then they should care about not having that information released anyway. But the really interesting part that was revealed in this interview was that they thought that the special counsel's office was going to flag all of the material in the two volumes of the Mueller report that was taken from grand jury testimony. So they thought when they got the report, it would be very quick to be able to turn around uh, the, the report to release it because th they would already know what information was gained from grand jury testimony. And it would be very hard for the attorney general's office, who had not been part of the investigation, had been cordoned off as part of the special counsel's office, to, to quickly identify what is the grand jury testimony. So it came to them as a surprise that, that the special counsel's office had not done this. So that was part of why it was delayed, and that was part of why he gave an, an intermediate uh, report or press conference where there was a letter and he gave out the chief conclusions of the report. And his conclusion, Rod Rosenstein's conclusion, that there was not obstruction. Um, so that's why they did the four-page letter, and it was because they originally thought they would get the grand jury testimony flagged by the special counsel's office. That was not the case. So it took them many more weeks than they expected to be able to put the, the report out. And, uh, that would not have had, that would not have been required to have been done, except the special counsel's office did not provide the proper information when they released the report in the first time, because if you could release something in a few days, then there would be no need for an intermediate discussion of it. Uh, but if it was going to take three and four weeks, 
you you probably remember there were news cameras camped out at Bill Barr's house and everywhere he went, he was followed. And, you know, the media in New York and D.C., they were just in a complete frenzy and tizzy to get any inside information on what the report actually said. And back up to the beginning of this discussion that we're having right now, uh, all of the hopes and fantasies of all the partisans who wanted to take down President Trump and his administration were pinned to this report. So the frenzy was acute, and certainly Attorney General Barr wanted to turn down the temperature on that a little bit. And then looking through the rest of this interview with um, with Jan Crawford, it's very fascinating to think about what was the predicate of the investigation in the first place. So you see a lot of activity by the intelligence community, the FBI, in the run-up to the 2016 election. And what was the basis of that? Uh, Attorney General Barr has indicated that they're going to investigate that. And uh, they have someone who has been trusted by both parties to investigate these types of matters, who's going to be investigating it and has a, a good reputation as a fair-minded arbiter of, uh, or not arbiter, but a fair-minded investigator of these types of things. And it's very interesting because when you look back at 2016, uh, it's it Bill Barr in this interview basically is saying, who was asleep at the switch also? Not just the fact that the investigation of the Trump campaign may have been illegal and may have been uh, you know, out of, out of a complete desire to take down the president, hold that aside for a moment. But just think about it. If they really thought that the Russians were trying to interfere in the 2016 election and their response, and I'm quoting Bill Barr right here, I'm wondering what exactly was the response to that if they were alarmed. Surely the response should have been more than just dangling a confidential informant in front of a peripheral player in the Trump campaign. So I think it's exceedingly important, not just to understand what happened in the past, but also going forward, was that enough that should have been done in 2016 to thwart Russian interference in our presidential elections? And there should be an understanding of why this counterintelligence act intelligence activity was directed at the Trump campaign. And did they go through normal procedures? Attorney General Barr says it doesn't seem like it was the normal course and through the normal procedures. And a lot of those people who were behind that counterintelligence uh, operation aren't in the FBI anymore. And, you know, you're thinking of uh, many of these people who have been let go or fired or um, have gone on to greener pastures. And there's a, a interest in trying to figure out what actually happened. Um, I also think that a, another great paragraph that attorney or point that Attorney General Barr made, um, let me read it to you. And I quote, Republicans have fallen because of Praetorian Guard mentality, where government officials get very arrogant 
They identify the national interest with their own political preferences, and they feel that anyone who has a different opinion, you know, is somehow an enemy of the state. And there's that tendency that they know better and that they're there to protect as guardians of the people. That can easily translate into essentially supervening the will of the majority and getting your own way as a government official. So he understands the threat of this type of activity. He's going to look at it and understand how our foreign, foreign intelligence capabilities and counterintelligence capabilities were possibly used against an American political campaign. And he, I think this is just so, so insightful to understand his philosophy of the proper role of the attorney general. He says one of the key responsibilities of the attorney general is to make sure that government power is not abused and that the right of Americans are not transgressed by abusive government power. That's the responsibility of, of an attorney general. And I think that should cheer everyone, that he is someone who follows the rule of law, who cares about making sure that the arms of the Justice Department and our counterintelligence agencies are not used by those who think they're wiser than the voters to try and get through other means what they were not able to accomplish through our system, which is an election, a, a, a presidential election every four years. And I think as we continue to look at the future, this is just not going to be dropped. And maybe this will be the point that a lot of things change because maybe Washington will finally wake up that there is not absolute power, that there can be consequences. I think of Lois Lerner. You might remember her. She was the director of the nonprofit section of the IRS in the lead up to the 2012 presidential election when there were a lot of very serious allegations that the Obama administration was trying to target and take out uh, organizations that were seen as being against President Obama being reelected. And they were denying uh, the status to these organizations that were on the political right. And they were um, harassing folks that, uh, not just the IRS, but other federal agencies were harassing folks that were opposed to President Obama's reelection. Lois Lerner, who I remind you is an employee of the taxpayer, She's an employee of the IRS. She's responsible to her employer, the Internal Revenue Service. She's ultimately responsible to the taxpayers. They were questioning her. She came before the Congress and she pled the fifth. She refused to answer questions that her essentially employers and the, the people who are funding her salary to do her job were asking about what she did. And she she can she retired she got her pension and there were no consequences so to to wrap all of this up i think it's important to see that this could be a watershed moment in our the way things operate in washington dc if there is an investigation that proves that our 
uh, Justice Department and our counterintelligence agencies were used to try and thwart the campaign of someone that those in power didn't like, and there and that sh is shown by evidence to be true. And there are consequences that are paid. That may have a reverberating effect, not just on the current controversy, but also on the continuing. Uh, I guess, inclination of people in power to abuse that power. But we will see. So hold tight on that. We'll continue to talk about that. Let's go on to our third topic. And that I'm going to pull in the most fabulous producer ever, Thomas LaDuke. Welcome to our discussion, Thomas. Wow, I, well, thank you, Gail. Uh, that, <clears throat> I'm glad that check cleared. It <laughs> was uh, a big check too. Yeah, let me for, tell you. To set up, <laughs> set that up. That is, uh, that that is uh, not only gracious, but it's uh, true. It is true. It is true. <laughs> and uh, I, I have to, you know, mind what I say because I want to make sure I I uh, properly represent things because I am an officer of the court. <laughs> true. Also, I could edit it to make it sound like whatever I want. That's true. So yeah. you have that absolute power too. <laughs> Well, Thomas and I were talking a little bit before the show started about this other thing that just has completely exploded on the internet this week. And I have never listened to this gentleman, Stephen Crowder, but I'm familiar with him. He is a comedian. He's a podcaster. He's a host. And he is very, very popular. He has a large platform. And we have seen a little bit this week about how this continuing targeting of people with what is deemed unpopular opinions being deplatformed, demonetized, and uh, the effort of big tech and the people who cry loudest to big tech and have the bit biggest impact on them being able to silence voices that they don't like. So I was asking Thomas about this, and I wondered if he had any opinions on it or had any connection with Crowder, and I was surprised to learn this. So tell us a little bit about it, Thomas. Yeah, I've known uh, Steve for <clears throat> a number of years. Uh, for your listeners that might remember, there was an incident in Michigan back in 2012 uh, at a uh, right-to-work rally, and uh, Crowder uh, got punched in the face by grumpy, intoxicated union worker. Uh, I was standing right next to him filming with my little flip camera, and uh, I'd met Steve a, a number of times before the years previous, but, um, uh, you know, uh, we're friends. I, I produced a show uh, on Wham 1600 for a couple months. Best producer ever. Yeah, true. It, it, it That is so true. Boy, I tell you what, that large check, dividends keep paying on that. <laughs> I give you your money's worth. <laughs> Bingo. So um, Steve, um, he, he has gone on to build a fabulous platform with uh, Louder with Crowder. And he has he, he gets in the scraps with people and I love the way that you describe him because one of the reason one of the things that drives me nuts about um, when somebody <clears throat> that is more of the conservative ilk around the right, it's always a conservative comedian. Now, he's a comedian. Yes. Okay? That's what he is. He's a comedian that has a certain point of view just like other comedians and he's out there doing his bit, okay? And he has a, a really entertaining, informative show. Well, he was uh, yesterday, 
uh, and this would have been Wednesday, June 5th, uh, informed by uh, YouTube that he was being demonetized. Now, I watched half of his explanation of this last night, and according to him, um, the vast majority of their income doesn't come from YouTube, so it's not uh, going to crush them. But it is going to crush other people that are using that as maybe the main source of their income. And here's the problem. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> There's no uniform set of rules. Nobody from YouTube or Twitter or Facebook can come out and say, aha, this is what you did. There's this vague glob of, oh, if we're going to get enough heat, uh, this is what we're going to do. Right, right, right. And I go, what's the standard? There's no standard. I go back to uh, the Joe Rogan experience. Joe Rogan is one of the most listened to YouTubers, podcasters, everything. Joe Rogan has had on Jack from Twitter twice. And the last time he had him on, he had, and it was a three-hour show. And I, I, I couldn't believe they did a three-hour show on this. But there was a gentleman on there who, I forget his name, he was from Twitter and very, very big following, uh, more of a conservative uh, bent. And he was talking to Jack and their legal counsel about, well, what about this person? What about this person? What about this person? They were all over the board. And anybody can go and watch this and see for themselves. And now Crowder and other people like him, um, and you don't have to like what Alex Jones says. You don't have to right. like what some of these other people say. And I don't. Just okay. To be I, clear. I don't either. I But <laughs> I would rather have Alex Jones out there on a platform where he can get, you know, um, verbal pot Made shots. Fun of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is the standard? These companies have gotten so big and so powerful that they are they're they're immune to basically I don't want to say immune, but we don't know what the standard is. Yesterday Crowder and he explains this got three different communications from YouTube on why he was being demonetized. First, it was because they were sending a shirt. No, first it was this, and then, oh, okay, this. There, there's no, um, there is no continuity in thought. And then uh, somebody else who's a very large YouTuber has been on the platform since uh, 2009, Philip DeFranco, was, oh. was doing his show and had to stop three times and go in and re-edit because YouTube had changed the reasoning three times in his 25-minute show. Wow. <laughs> so it I don't know what to do. We we were talking about this, right? Right, I, right, cuz you and I both agree like government intervention is not something that people who support free markets and free people think should be done because when government gets involved in stuff, except for things like antitrust, I mean that that's a proper function of government, but generally the government getting involved in it is ne- not necessarily going to fix a problem. It just might add more problems. Yeah, and, and going back and forth in my little town, when I had people say, well, this is a First Amendment violation, it's not. Your First Amendment rights are with the government trying to stifle you as an individual addressing grievances to the government. These are private companies. All right, now, they have to operate within uh, certain guidelines and laws that are put out but, hey, you don't like Facebook? 
you can go to something else. But right. on the flip side of that, at what point do they become so big and so powerful that it's kind of like does government have to or something has to put them in check? And I got to tell you, I'm extremely disappointed that in a nation of 330 million people, right? I know lot, where you're going with this. <laughs> with a lot of people out there that are just smart as whips, nobody has come out with something that is somewhat of a competitor to Facebook or to Twitter or to right. YouTube. Right. And um, anytime, I don't know if you get this on Twitter, but sometimes people will message me on Twitter and they'll say, hey, can you go to Parler or Gab or X or Y? And I consider it for half a second. And then I, <laughs> you know, I end up not doing it. I don't really have a good answer for that. But right. I, I think it's, I think it's multiple things. There's the, the, the big player who gets in it and then gets all the attention and, then once it's kind of like with banks, you know, you, you put your your accounts at a bank and then you might get mad at them, but then you don't really want to move your accounts, even though you're you're maybe not as happy with the service that you're getting. You're just kind of stuck on it. And I feel that's the way a lot of people are with Facebook. Like, I don't know if you have friends who will say, I'm deleting Facebook and then they'll like make it um make it so you can't see it anymore, but they won't permanently delete it. And then after three months, something happens and they're back on it. And it's this love-hate relationship with these companies. And, you know, you think of Mark Zuckerberg, who basically designed this out of his dorm room at Harvard. And it, it's been a culturally, uh, it has changed the culture in a lot of ways. Ways that, a, a I don't know how old he was, 19, 20, 22 years old. How could he have predicted that? And we as a culture, I don't think we have a good solution to it because you want freedom. You don't want government overregulation of businesses. And you I mean, I don't really want to support Alex Jones or give him money or help help him get his message out. But I think having his message out and how ridiculous it is is a good, you know, it's it's self-indicting that his his message is not good. And well, he, as okay. my kids say, he's always selling, I don't know, supplements or <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, that's that's exactly it. But Okay, the the United States, the way that we're set up right now, Jones crossed a line, and he's being sued civilly now. Yes, exactly. Okay? That's how you operate. The government is not supposed to come in, but I, you know, on the flip side of this, we have these huge corporations that we don't know what the rules are. I, if if you work in an automotive company, you have, uh, you know, a third. I mean, if it's an American automotive company, you have a third uh, uh, entity, a union, that is there to negotiate and represent you, and there are rules. And you, you go, you broke this rule, you broke this rule, you broke this rule. It's not like, um, you know, you didn't actually threaten anybody, but we don't like what you say. Right. And Steve breaks right. this down. He's like, okay, what did I say? Well, this, this, uh, this show... Uh, uh, show 202, uh, you said blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, but I was responding to the person that was, you know, transgender. Right. And they, they, right so right. it's like there, there just is no standard. And you had, well, within the past six months, Zuckerberg went up to Capitol Hill. Jack from Twitter went up to Capitol Hill. You have a bunch of uh, people up there, elected officials, that the vast majority are totally incapable of discussing this in any way, shape, or form. You know, like, uh, uh, what right. happens when I lose my 
I am. It's okay. Stop it. All right. And and they are just operating right now in a way that it's like essentially they do have the middle finger extended, and they're like, go ahead and try to do anything to us. Well, because the people who would be the natural regulators, they don't want to regulate because they're on their team. And the people who are anti-regulation, they're, they have that principle. So it's this, I, this is, we're not going to resolve this. This is not going to be resolved anytime soon. But I think you're going to continue to see really powerful voices suppressed. And I think we as a culture just have to decide you know, what is the solution to this? Do we want more speech or do we want less speech? And I hope we come down on the side of more speech and we can debate things and less about, uh, you know, deciding who has wrong think and who needs to be suppressed. But that's just my, that's my personal inclination. Here, here we are talking on the day that we celebrate the 75th anniversary of 150,000 young men going to liberate a continent that had been overtaken by fascists. And yes. fasc fascism just doesn't, like, one day appear at your door. There is a uh, discussion and ideas, and once they start to take root, and if you don't combat it, it really starts to take off. And here we have today yes. people who if they yell and scream enough saying that they're oppressed or they're being, you know, they feel as though uh, the people are being mean or what have you, and a comedian like Crowder, and you can go through the list. I mean, I can't imagine what would happen to Don Rickles today if he was actually uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, come up and everything. They would throw him in jail. That we have these people that with just yelling and screaming enough that have fascist uh, roots, I would say, that if you don't agree with me and agree with this, then you need to be put away. That should be terrifying to people. Right, and I think bringing up D-Day and the overtaking of Europe by fascism in the 1930s and 40s, I think also drives home the other point that we're saying in this debate. You don't want government deciding who can speak and who can't speak. And we have the benefit of the First Amendment in this country. So how, how are you going to have the government regulating this in a way that isn't going to just create more power for the government? And that is that is the Scylla and Charybdis that we find ourselves between. And there, at this point, I don't think anyone really has a good answer to that. And related to the comedy point, you might remember we had Sheila Wentz on as a guest who's a pod, who's a comedy instructor. She's right. a professional com comedian herself. Um, I also last night went to a comedy club and there were probably 10 different amateur comedians who gave five minute bits. And I would have to say everything they said probably was offensive to someone in the room. Um, and maybe all of it was offensive to me. I don't know. A lot of it was offensive to me, but that's part of the entire point of free speech and comedy in particular, it's supposed to be offensive. It's supposed to be challenging the status quo. It's supposed to make you think in a way that you wouldn't otherwise in your normal life. And it's supposed to make you laugh too. Um, some of it is just so outrageous. You have to laugh. Uh, but I think when we think of the sacrifices of our military service members and their families, um, on D-Day, throughout World War II, and, and the ones who sacrifice now, 
you, you have to understand that part of why we are a free country is because we have the ability to say offensive things. And I, we used to have the, the saying about, you know, I disagree with what you say, but I will fight to the death your right to say it. And we need to get back to that. Quick. Oh, we do, because I'm taking a look at this and saying, and I'm I'm more sensitive to it, of course, because it's people that I probably agree with more than I disagree, but I'm taking a look at this and saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, you know, this is not the route that we want to be going down. And, right. you know, once again, you talked about comedy. My view on that has always been a really good comedian is going to make you laugh hysterically and make you squirm a little bit. Yes. Okay. And today, there are very few comedians, I think, that not only can do that but get away with it. I think Dave Chappelle is one of the best. But, to, I mean, with some of the things that comedians in the past said, I mean, George Carlin, uh, right. Richard uh, Pryor, they would they would just be beaten down today for saying some of the bits that they've done. Eddie Murphy. It is amazing where we've be, uh, gone to now that you may not like Crowder's humor. You you might not like it. You might not like his point of view. But to actually try to attack not only his income but his platform and try to get the the gentleman who uh, was complaining about him, he's not happy that he's demonetized. Right, he, he wanted him, him silenced. He wants Demonization him doesn't matter. Off. He's like, he sells t-shirts off this. He, yeah. he doesn't even get most of his money from YouTube. This is not enough. YouTube yeah. should permanently ban him from YouTube. I mean, come on. That really How about is... I'll just argue against him? Like, he's not he's not threatening you with, you know, physical violence. And, and uh, for, for I, I just don't understand that attitude. I would I would say, you know, come, come with your arguments and I will meet you. You, I will, you know, go up argument, argument against you. But I, I don't want. I, I myself don't want to silence people that I disagree with. It's, it's anathema to anyone who has the idea of, you know, being able to, to debate with people. And it's just crazy. It's crazy that we're at this point in our society. And I don't think we're gonna be done with this discussion. So Thomas, thank you so much for giving us your insights on this hot topic on the internet right now. And I feel like we're going to come back to this a lot over the next few months. You are very welcome. And I bet we will. This is Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to this podcast on, well, I guess not iTunes anymore, but you can leave a review. And most importantly, you can support this podcast on Patreon. We have great, comfortable, well-fitting t-shirts as gifts for patrons, courtesy of Hard Hits Custom Apparel. We would also like to thank Trio Caliente, a local DC group for the music on these podcasts. This is Right in DC. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.